You can turn in your Bibles to Philippians. We're going to march our way through Philippians. Probably take another year or so to get us through it, but that's okay. Philippians chapter 2. And as you turn there, I just really want to ask one question. What makes you happy? What is it that makes you happy? What lifts your spirit? What sets your heart on fire? For some of you, I know that it's chocolate. It's chocolate that makes you really happy. Maybe dark chocolate. Maybe milk chocolate. Maybe some of Swellen's truffles. <laughs> they make me happy. Maybe uh, a rugby match victory makes you happy. Uh, maybe a good grade. Maybe a nice glass of wine. A long hot shower. Um, I know for my youngest, a glass of milk makes him really happy. Uh, coffee with a friend would make me really happy. If I could just sit in a coffee shop right now <laughs> and have coffee with a friend, it would be wonderful. Uh, these are all really wonderful things, you know, and, and uh, it's good to enjoy them. But when we look at this passage here, I want us to see that the Apostle Paul, uh, he gives us a glimpse of some deeper places of happiness. Uh, so I'm going to read from verse 19 all the way down to the end of the chapter. This is Philippians 2, 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is a little bit of a tough passage to preach. Uh, it's not because there's some some tricky theological things in there. It's 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 not because there's necessarily some culturally challenging issues or even like some I don't know risky social concerns or something. Uh, it's a little bit tricky because what do the travel plans of two men from two thousand years ago have to do with us today? I mean, it seems like Paul is just telling us Timothy's doing this and Epaphroditus is doing that. And we're like, well, wh why does that matter to us? Uh, and so there's very little direct teaching in these paragraphs. Uh, but when we ask ourselves, why did Paul put these here? 
There has to be a reason why Paul put these paragraphs here. Often in Paul's letters, when he is giving uh, salutations and greetings and instructions about travel plans, it's often at the end of the letter. uh, And those still have value and those still have purpose. Um, But for some reason, Paul put them right here. First, he does actually have to convey information. So so that is one reason why he is telling us about Timothy's travel plans and about Epaphroditus' travel plans. He needs them. uh, He needs to tell them who's coming and when, and, you know, just like you would. Like we don't have, you know, he didn't have email. (laughs) So so he had to write a letter so that they were clear of what was going on. Um, But remember, uh, there's also another author here. So while the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians, the Holy Spirit is writing a letter to them as well. And he's writing a letter to us as well. So that's the the beauty of the Word of God is that it's authentic. This is a letter. It's a real letter that was written by a real person to a real group of people a couple thousand years ago. And yet it's also a letter uh, from the Holy Spirit written to us today. And so... What does the travel plans, what do the travel plans of, of a couple men 2,000 years ago have to do with us? Well, uh, I think we can discover that when we just look at the context around it. When we're wondering, why is this here? Or what is this for? We just look. We look around, uh, and what has Paul been talking about? And he's talking about Christian unity. He's talking about faithfulness. And he's giving us examples here. Uh, and the beginning of this letter, uh, he gave himself as an example. He, he talked about how he suffered that the gospel may advance in, in chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, he talked about how he was imprisoned. And in that, others were speaking more boldly because of his imprisonment. That was in chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, he said that he can rejoice even when Christ is preached out of selfish ambition by those who try to hurt him. He's giving him himself as an example. He also has told them that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he has presented himself as an example, as a, a follower of the Lord Jesus. And then he's called them. He's called them to some things. He's called them to have their manner of life worthy of the gospel. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 27. He's called them to stand firm in one spirit, in one mind. He's called them to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. To do nothing out of selfish ambition. To count others more significant than themselves. And then he he moved in to the ultimate example of Jesus. uh, Who did not take advantage of his deity. Who emptied himself by adding humanity to himself. And then he became obedient all the way to the point of death on a cross. And so the context of these two men and their travel plans being put here is in the context of what does it look like to be faithful and to be unified in this Christian life. Now, while mentioning some of these practical details, he does reveal that these two men are examples of faithful obedience. Timothy and Epaphroditus are being faithful. And while it's okay, it really is okay if chocolate makes you happy. I mean, it really is okay if chocolate makes you happy. Paul is happy for a greater reason. So there are greater reasons for happiness. And he's happy here. 
Because these, these truths of the Christian life that make the people of God the people of God are percolating to the surface. And so there are three things that I think the Holy Spirit is calling us to see here that are being brought to the surface that he also wants in our lives to be brought to the surface. And so those are going to be my three points this morning of what is it that we want to bring in our Christian life. And I think the first thing we want to bring is cheer. We want to bring cheer in this life. If you look at verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He's writing to the Philippians. He's expecting to hear back and he's expecting to be cheered by that news. Now what is it that the what news does he want that's going to cheer him up? Do you think it's, you know, the latest Facebook post of babies being born or he wants to hear of the new sandals that somebody got or maybe they've been eating out for dinner and he's really interested in the detailed descriptions and the pictures of what they had for food that night. Or maybe he's hoping to hear some of the latest political drama. I don't think that's probably the news that he was waiting for. Um, maybe he just wants news with what's happening in the church. Maybe, you know, who's, who's playing the best music? Or who's the most articulate preacher? Do you think maybe he's going to be cheered by how many people are attending the midweek study? I don't think that's the news that he's looking for. Uh, or maybe the news that how great things are going in the church, that there's just perfect unity in Philippi, uh, and a report that there's zero quarrels among them. Well, you know, that's not realistic, because he's writing them a letter about unity, and he talks later about people that were actually um, kind of in, in argument with each other. So he's not necessarily expecting perfection. So what is it? What is the news that he wants to hear that's going to cheer him up? I think it's the news of faithful obedience. He wants to be cheered by the news that the Philippians are fighting for faithful obedience. Brothers and sisters, do you want to cheer your church leaders? Love each other like Timothy loved Paul. Sacrifice for each other like Epaphrodites sacrificed for Paul. Seek the interests of Jesus like Paul describes Timothy doing. Do you want to cheer your boss? Work hard, labor well, fight against laziness. Do you want to cheer your wives, husbands? Pray that you will live with them in an understanding way. Love them as Christ loved the church. Wives, do you want to cheer your husbands? Joyfully submit to his leadership. Be his helpmate. Kids, teens, do you want to cheer your parents? Obey them. Listen when they talk to you about the things of God. Paul's expressing in these very few words an expectation that the people of God obey the word of God. Even in 2.12, In 2.12, if you just look up a few verses, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's expecting them to obey. He fully expects Timothy will return to him with the news that the Philippians are fighting for unity among themselves. 
That was his expectation. And that should be our expectation. Paul tells the Romans that sin has no dominion over them. Why? Because they're under grace. And in 1 John, John says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Brother and sister, bring cheer wherever you go by not seeing the commands of God as burdensome. But joyfully and faithfully obey. Joyfully and faithfully obey. Now, will we fail? Yes. Will we muddle through that? Yes. Will we fall down? Yes. But then again, First John tells us, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, whenever we feel that we can't do this, and whenever we feel like we're a mess, and whenever we're being accused by the enemy, God is greater than our hearts. Paul is expecting the Philippians to bring cheer to him, just like Timothy and Epaphroditus, because those who believe are transformed. Those who believe the gospel are transformed. And that's what Paul was expecting. He's expecting transformation. And we know that because he said in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He was confident in that. Are you confident in that? Are you confident that the Lord is transforming you? To be like Jesus. Bring cheer. Bring cheer to those around you by having them observe your faithful obedience. He's also calling us to bring faithfulness. Point two, bring faithfulness. When I think of stories of faithfulness, especially now because um, one of my daughter's, my oldest daughter, has been reading uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I love. I love Tolkien. I love Lord of the Rings. I even debated though whether or not to use this as an illustration because it felt kind of cliche. But uh, <laughs> but she's been reading the books, and I, I tell my kids, if you're going to watch the film, you have to read the book. And so she faithfully read these books, and then we watched the films with her. But when you think about faithfulness, an example that has this has been brewing in my head is, is Frodo Baggins. And if you haven't read or seen the films, I encourage you to. I love the friendship and the camaraderie and the good triumphing over evil. I love the pictures of service and kingship that you see in these novels. And there's a scene in the first book, where, um, which is called The Fellowship of the Ring, where the races of Middle-earth are coming together to decide what to do with this ring of power that is wreaking destruction on their world. And they're arguing about what's best and what should do and who should take this ring to Mount Doom in Mordor and this this this, this like one way journey, basically. It's it's a it's a death sentence is what it sounds like. And Frodo he finally gets up and he says, In all of the confusion and all the arguing, I will take the ring, though I don't know the way. And then what does he do? The rest of the film is him faithfully laboring to do this one task 
this one task and he labors and he labors and he labors and he really doesn't think he's going to make it home. And yet he fights faithfully to do this because that's what he said he was going to do. This is what we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look at verse 20. Talking of Timothy, Paul says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I think Paul gives us a great definition, a simple definition of faithful obedience here. It's seeking the interests of Jesus. Do you want to faithfully obey the Lord? Seek His interests. Seek His interests. Uh, Do you want to be faithful? Do you want to bring faithfulness wherever you go? Seek the interests of Jesus. And what I love about this is you notice that when he's seeking the interests of Jesus, his genuine concern for others is somehow just magnified. And that's not what we normally think. You're thinking, well, if I'm seeking the interests of another, how can I ever think about loving the people? If I'm always thinking about this person, how am I going to think about these people? But that's God's economy. In God's economy, in God's world, in God's kingdom, when I put Him first, that actually empowers me to love the people around me. The opposite is true when we seek our own interests. When we seek our own interests, it actually prevents us from loving others and being concerned for them. Timothy has proven worth in servanthood. He was so faithful to Paul, uh, and so much so that he needed to actually wait to send Timothy. And that's what you see here. He's saying, I really hope to send Timothy, but I need to see what happens with me first. Because remember, Paul's in prison. And he's not sure what's going to happen. And he desperately just needs Timothy by his side. And so he doesn't say, I'm sending him right away. He says, I'm sending him when I know what's happening with me. This is the Apostle Paul. And not to put him on a a pedestal, but I'm thinking he probably had a pretty high standard of what it means to serve and sacrifice and be faithful. And he didn't want to let Timothy go. That's a huge testimony testimony to the faithfulness of Timothy. We want to be like him. We want to be like him. Let's be people who others can't bear to part from. Wouldn't that be beautiful? If we were a church where others just couldn't bear to see us go because of our faithful obedience. Let's be that for the church. Let's be so faithful to Jesus that the overflow of that faithfulness spills out in a deep love for the body. Let's look at verse 30 and see how how Epaphroditus brought faithfulness. Verse 30 says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This friend of the Philippians was sent to Paul to to bring him some money and to serve him. Uh, And it seems that he fell ill and he almost died because of that illness. Uh, But look at the wonderful love that Epaphroditus had if you back up to verse 26, 
It says, He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He, he's distressed because the Philippians heard that he was ill. He's not distressed because he's ill. He's distressed because the Philippians heard. And he didn't, he just didn't want to put that on them. He didn't want them to worry. Uh, he's focused on the kingdom of God, not on self. And that focus moves him to love others really, really well, despite of his own, his own circumstances. Uh, another, another quote from the Lord of the Rings, um, is Gandalf. He's talking to Frodo uh, after after uh, he has agreed to begin this journey from the Shire with the ring. Gandalf says uh, to him, I, I, he says, My dear Frodo, hobbits really are amazing creatures. As I, I have said before, you can learn all there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet after a hundred years, they can still surprise you at a pinch. Outwardly, hobbits were tiny, ordinary, sociable. They did normal things. They lived pretty quiet lives. But as you watch the films, you realize there's this beautiful, inward, exceptionally brave, courageous spirit of hobbits. And they were just fiercely loyal. Outwardly, they didn't look like much. But inwardly... They were amazing. Wouldn't it be lovely? Wouldn't it be amazing if people thought that they knew everything about us and yet we still surprise them with deep love and compassion and gentleness and faithfulness and grace? That they think that they know you because they've lived next to you for years and you've even loved them well in that time. And yet they still are surprised when you serve them and when you love them and when you listen to them. What faithfulness requires, though, is risk. Seeking the interest of Jesus and working for Christ is risky because we don't know what's going to happen. Talking to the stranger is risky. Talking to family is risky, let alone the stranger. Caring for the weak is risky. Giving sacrificially to the church and to mission is risky. Serving with your time, talents, and energy is risky. Who knows what might happen? Who knows what someone might say to you? Who knows what you could have bought with that money that you gave. Or who knows when you might need money and then, the, but then you gave it away. Who knows what could have been accomplished with your time if you hadn't come early or stayed late to set up or to break down on a Friday or a Sunday. Now you won't get these ideas of faithful obedience from the broader culture. This idea of faithful obedience uh, to serve one another. The world wants you to think about one person, you. That's what the world wants you to think about. That's what your flesh, that's who your flesh wants you to think about. That's why babies are aborted. That's why society says you can marry whoever you want. That's why divorce is rampant. That's why children go unattended and ignored and are thought of as burdens. 
That's why the gospel's offensive. Lay down my life for another? I thought my life was about me. And this is what Epaphroditus was willing to do. He was willing to die for the kingdom and in the service of other people. And this is the normal Christian life. It really is the normal Christian life. While we may look ordinary on the outside, because of the work of God in our hearts, there is an exceptional grace to be faithful on the inside. Paul is holding out. He's holding out Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of faithfulness. But listen, he's not putting them on a pedestal. And we know this for two reasons. We know he's not, he's not saying, look how amazing they are in and of themselves and you just need to be like them because they're wonderful and perfect. He's just holding them out in his example. And we know that this is true because just a few verses above, we're told that it's God, I just, I had read it earlier, it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this exceptional grace that allows us to be faithful isn't conjured up within ourselves. It's not like I can just make it happen. And so if we're looking at Timothy and Epaphroditus, it isn't because they are so great that they are doing something. It's because God is doing a work in them. And so we know that Paul's not holding them up to some level that's unattainable. He's holding them up and saying, look what Jesus has done in Timothy and Epaphroditus. We also know he's not putting them on pedestals because just a few verses above this, Paul tells the Philippians that it's Jesus that has a name that's above every name. Timothy doesn't have that name. Epaphroditus doesn't have that name. No one's going to bow to these two men. But that's in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so we know that Paul's not somehow putting them in a place that they shouldn't belong. But he is still holding them out for us to look at. And as a model, because we need models. It moves us when we see people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. It should move us um, to be how Paul describes him there. uh, In verse... 25, he describes Epaphroditus as my brother, my worker, soldier, messenger, minister. (laughs) Those are all words that should describe anyone in Jesus. That's all of us in Jesus. We are workers, soldiers, messengers, and ministers, just like Epaphroditus. That's what the gospel creates in us. The gospel creates faithfulness in us so that we can actually seek the interests of Jesus. There's no other way. If you are outside of Jesus this morning, there's no way you can seek his interests. It's not possible. Turn to him today. Be transformed by the power of grace. And if you're in Christ, you are not going to do this perfectly. Again, that's not the expectation but he will create a faithfulness in you. And you can bring that faithfulness with you wherever you go. You can bring cheer. You bring cheer because you bring faithfulness. Finally, we see that Paul's asking the Philippians to bring honor to those who are faithful. 
to those who cheer his soul by living out this exceptional grace that's been given to them. He expects them to be honored. Look at verse 29. So receive him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. First, I think we should see that giving honor is not optional. It's not an optional thing. It was right and good and expected to give honor. Second, it was to be done with joy. It's it's not a tempered honor or a done like out of duty that I just have to I just have to honor you fine. Good job, well done. Thanks for being a great example. No, it's joyfully because you're excited. We should be excited to see Jesus transforming the hearts of those around us because it's a reminder that he's transforming our hearts. But why? Why should these men be honored? Well, he tells us that he nearly died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to serve in a way that the Philippians could not. And so he's not rebuking the Philippians because of some lack of service. That's not what that means there. It just means that Epaphroditus was serving him in a way that the rest of the Philippians could not serve him. And so uh, it was a fact. And because of that, they owe their gratitude to Epaphroditus. We too are to honor those who serve Christ. Often there are people who serve in ways that we cannot. Do we honor them for that? We're not all made the same. We're not all made to serve in the same ways. Do we honor those? Do we acknowledge their faithfulness? When's the last time you honored someone? I don't mean some big fanfare and have a parade and a banquet feast. I don't mean that. I just mean simple acknowledgement of faithfulness. Are we resistant to honoring those who achieve or do well for the kingdom? I am. Do you know why I am? Because when, so- when someone looks good, it makes me feel like I look bad. It's my pride that keeps me from honoring other people. We're, we are resistant to that. But may that never be the case in the church. We want to be a church that honor those who honor Christ. We are to honor the faithful. Who, who does this world honor? Often the world honors the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, the socially progressive, tolerant. We see that all over the place, but, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes by God's common grace, there, there's, there are godly traits that the world might honor, but often not. Who are we to honor? We're to honor the faithful, those who faithfully serve the church, those who faithfully lead the church, the older people who have sacrificed their time and energy to see the church thrive, the widows whose only service may be intimate prayer that you never see. Or maybe the teens and children who are just trying to faithfully obey their parents and God in a world that is telling them to do the complete opposite. Do we honor those who do that? Let's be those people. Let's be those people who honor and encourage those around us who are fighting for faithfulness. Uh, Remember, we're, we're not talking about giving glory to the person. Glory is due to Jesus alone. 
Uh, We glory in the work of grace done by the Spirit of Jesus in that person. And so what do you do when someone thanks you for something? What do you do when someone does honor you? Well, something, a real simple response could be, praise Jesus. Because sometimes it's just awkward if someone does say thank you or does say something. Sometimes we don't know how to respond that way because we know that Jesus should get the glory, but you're trying to tell me thank you. And so, just praise God. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that just points us upward in a moment. The servant is serving because they were first served. That's why we honor them. The leader is only equipped to lead because the great shepherd has called them to do that. We're honoring the work of Christ in the leader's heart. The older folks who have sacrificed for decades are the ones who are being transformed by the Spirit of God. The widows who are praying, it's only because Jesus has taught them how to pray. The teens who obey... It's only because they've been made new creations, as Emer reminded us in the reading. The old has gone, the new has come. And this is where I'll close. I've already referenced several places where we see the faithful obedience of God's work in our lives. Sorry, that, that it's God's work in our lives. We see that he, he's, he's transforming us again. Verse 6 of chapter 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Brother and sister, you're empowered to live like this. You're empowered to be a Timothy or an Epaphroditus. This is not outside our grasp, because the gospel is transforming us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Emer read it, I'll read it again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We can live like this. And so don't be discouraged when you see another person's service and you think that I can't do that. Because sometimes we do that. We look at other people and we compare ourselves to them and say, like, I could never do that. Or I could never serve like that. Or I could never give up what they've given up. My circumstances prevent me. You don't understand. My life experiences are different. My history prevents me from doing that. Well, we're all different with our gifts and our talents. It's the same Lord who's transforming our character to be like His character. We're being refined day by day. We are works in progress. We are construction zones. If you find yourself struggling to be faithful, is that anybody this morning? You don't have to raise your hand, but anybody struggling to be faithful? If you're finding it hard to be faithful, you are not alone, first of all. You can look to your neighbor and they're struggling to be faithful too. In some area, in some way, in some part of their life, Because we're all being transformed and we're not perfect yet. So first, you're not alone. Second, if you're struggling to be faithful, repent. Run to Jesus with it. He he can handle your unfaithfulness. He really can. And when we run to Him 
and confess to him, he frees us to start again. And then you just start serving again. And you start praying again. You start reading your Bible again. You start caring for others again. You start giving again. You start laying down your life for the sake of the gospel again. And then when you struggle to be faithful the next time, you're not alone. You repent. You believe that Jesus is transforming you. And you start again. And then when you fail (laughs) and you muddle through and you struggle, you start again. That is the Christian life. That is the Christian life. None of us do this perfectly, but we're empowered by the one who did it perfectly. And that's the beauty of the gospel. He's not expecting perfection. He's making you perfect. And that's a journey. It's the one who has the name above every name that's doing that. Remember that. And that's the context of this. It's the one who every knee will bow to one day. He's the one who's doing this. He's all-powerful. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The all-powerful one takes the powerless and transforms us into beautiful ones who can be faithful. So trust, brother and sister, trust that God is completing a work in you. He's completing it. And then step out in risk-taking faith. See what happens. And when we fail, we repent, we run to Jesus, and we start again. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for faithful examples like Timothy and Epaphroditus. We thank you for faithful examples in our own lives. Father, help us to bring cheer and to bring faithfulness and to bring honor. We are weak, and yet you are strong. So, Father, we we thank you for this body. We are simple on the outside, yet you are making us extraordinary on the inside. And so, Father, help us to live out of that extraordinary identity. Father, help us to grow in repentance and faith and to walk those two steps every single day. Help us to trust you in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to have a time of reflection on the Lord's death as Brendan leads us in the Lord's table.